0: Hello, and welcome to this mini-series of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. My name is Amit Gvelyahu, and with me today are Edith Beno and Anna Gutgautz. We will talk to each other about the role of money in making the bonds that connect us to other people, and erecting the fences that separate us from them too. When we want to join a project, we pay dues. When we need our space, we rent an apartment. It's mine is a claim made both to justify keeping people out and bringing people in. Money constitutes the public, and also makes things private. This is our first act, Money, 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 and in it, Edith Beno will talk about enterprising English individuals who made their own coins, and what exactly other people did with them, besides of course, buying beer.
1: Coins, the object we use for very small purchases or receive as change in a store, have a lot to teach us about what is considered public and what is considered private. We don't really stop to think about coinage in our daily lives. It's pretty clear to us where it comes from, how we use it, what it means. But let's take some time to take apart what this object is, a penny or a quarter, and how we can understand what this type of money does and where its authority actually comes from. One person who can help us clarify these questions is a man by the name of Thomas Matthew, who was from London, and he decided to issue his own coin worth half a penny. This was not a counterfeit coin. It was a coin of its own creation. This was in no way an anonymous coin. He clearly states on it his name and where he can be found. Thomas's penny indicates the location of his business, telling us the exact address and even giving us some instructions on how we can find the place, inscribing that it is on the back side of St. Thomas Apostle Street. Everything about the half penny points to a very specific person in a very specific place with a very specific business. The year Thomas issued this coin was 1669, hundreds of years ago, long before the appearance of cryptocurrency. In the imagination of many people living in the 21st century, Cryptocurrencies are something completely new, money issued by non-state actors. Many people have heard of shells or salt being used as money in the past. But just like Thomas, there are many examples of actual coins and paper notes issued by private actors throughout history. But why would Thomas choose to create this coin? What would he gain from it? Did he really believe that this half penny would work like other coins do? What was the point? Thomas had a problem. The government had not issued small change, low-value coinage, in a very long time, almost three decades. It's true that part of this time was a very dramatic political period, civil war in England, King versus Parliament, but this is not why the government didn't issue small change. The scarcity was an ongoing problem way before the 17th century, hundreds of years, and hundreds of years after. Lack of small change happened quite often, because it was expensive to produce and distribute around the country, and it was also very easy to counterfeit. Not really a worthwhile endeavor for the government. This left Thomas stuck. He really needed small change for his business. Thomas ran an establishment with a lot of small purchases, and he needed to give his customers change often. He was probably a grocer. We know this because in addition to all the info that he put on his coin, there was also an image inscribed of a sugar cone, literally a lump of sugar which was the way sugar was sold at the time. This was a known image for grocers. There was also a chance that he owned an alehouse or a tavern, which were sometimes called the sugar cone. People would have used the image on the token to recognize which business was Thomas's, as the same image would have appeared on the sign outside his shop. Either way, whether he was a grocer or an alehouse keeper, a lot of people were buying from Thomas, and he couldn't give them change. Without government small change, Thomas was limited, He could raise prices to adjust, but that wasn't practical. He could give the customers credit, meaning allowing them to pay at a later date, keeping a tab for what they owe him. This did happen a lot. But Thomas didn't want to extend credit too much. In a city like London, with so many people and transactions, a city bustling with trade and new commodities, credit was too high risk. Thomas probably preferred to extend credit to people he knew and trusted to some extent. Also, there were people that no one wanted to extend credit to, like poor men and women. So Thomas chose another route, like 4,000 other issuers in London alone, and thousands more across the country, to issue his own money. So Thomas has his half penny issued, which he then gave to customers as small change in the shop. A customer could then come back and use the half penny at the store for future purposes, and this helped Thomas keep his business going. But was it really worth it? It seems so complicated. How would he make money from these coins if they were returned to him? Thomas was a business owner. He wouldn't choose to issue his own half penny if it was at a loss. True, it was not cheap to issue these coins, but Thomas was a man of means, like any grocer or alehouse owner at the time. It was also cheaper to issue a token than the worth of an actual official half penny. So if coins weren't returned to the business, he even made some profit on them. But there was another potential gain. Thomas was savvy, and he knew that this was also a potential for advertisement, an advertisement for his business that traveled through people's pockets. If we zoom out of Thomas's business decision, a big question comes to mind. Is this really money? It sounds more like a voucher or a coupon. Economically speaking, these coins were tokens, meaning they weren't worth their value in metal. They were made from cheap metals and worth what their issuers determined they were. This, of course, had to be accepted by the customer if they have any choice in the matter, meaning customers could theoretically reject a token coin if they thought its value was off. But we can still understand these coins as money, even if a limited type of money. halfpenny penny, quarter pennies, and pennies issued by actors like Thomas circulated further than just the issuer's shop. The sources show us that they were used in other businesses nearby. This means that they could, potentially at least, be used in multiple transactions, much like small change as we know it. Like any form of money, private or public, money needs a certain amount of authority to succeed to function as a means of exchange. Authority and trust are always core issues when it comes to money, especially if it's privately issued. The trust in Thomas's token had to derive from people believing that Thomas would accept the token again for payment in his shop. It was even better if others in the locality did as well. There was also an expectation that the token would be redeemed by its issuer. Let's say that over time a customer accumulated two pennies worth of Thomas' coins, meaning four half pennies altogether. That customer was theoretically supposed to be able to come back to the issuer and exchange the private tokens for governmental coins of a higher value. It is unknown how much this actually happened in practice. But what is interesting is that the promise of redemption was more important than the practice of it. It facilitated trust, creating a sense that these coins had something that backed it up. The king brought the story to an end in 1672 when he banned these sort of tokens. He published a declaration banning the tokens and accused the issuers like Thomas of conning the population to make profit. If we did not know the long history of small change in England, the declaration would seem to us, the 21st century observer, quite common sense. In this view, the issuers were taking on what was under clear monopoly of the government, issuing money. But this was not really the case, as the crown had not issued its own small change in over 30 years. In 1672, King Charles I decided to reinstate this monopoly because there was an economic crisis and he wanted to sell off the right to issue coinage to an outside contractor. This regained control over small change, the regained monopoly, did not last long. The big problem of small change, the scarcity of money in circulation, continued to resurface through the 18th and 19th century, and new forms of private money appeared again and again. This shows us that governmental control over money people use for everyday needs, like buying bread or beer or paying salaries, was far from a government-controlled project. This can help us think and visit questions cryptocurrencies are currently bringing to the table.
0: Indeed, I wonder what you can say about the current moment in cryptocurrencies, where we see that they're really not doing the work that your private currencies did, that they're being securitized, right? There's a market in cryptocurrencies that trading cryptocurrencies is more important um, and more prevalent than actually using them as a form of payment. And I wonder what you can learn about the current moment from from your coins.
1: So first off, I want to say that I'm not, claiming or making an argument that Thomas's coins are these 17th century, 18th century, and 19th century monies that were issued by private actors is the same as cryptocurrency. What I want to do is think about the variety of non-governmental monies that appear over time and, and theoretically think about them together, not because one is the same. I think the big question about cryptocurrencies is, just like Thomas's coin, can we really define it as money? And money has three theoretical functions it has to do in order to be considered money. It needs to act as a means of exchange, so something you buy goods and services with. It needs to be a unit of account, meaning a shared language in which we talk about um, the value of goods and services, Mm -hmm. and an accumulation of value, a tool to accumulate value, meaning I can hold on to this money and know theoretically that it'll maintain its value, and I will be able to accumulate it over time and use it. It doesn't always work perfectly, but that's the functions. According to those functions, cryptocurrency hasn't really translated yet into an acting money. It right now is more of an investment than something because nobody buys with it bread. I mean, there's a famous case where somebody bought with it pizza and probably really regretted it because they paid two whole cryptocurrencies for it. But because its value goes up and down and because people use it as a tool to invest, It hasn't really translated into daily money. So it wants to, or some of the actors involved, want different forms of cryptocurrency to turn into money, kind of like Thomas's, but on a much more global level. And here there's a question of the private and the public, but on a global scale.
0: So they're both avant-garde. They're early adopters.
1: I, I think it's maybe giving too much credit, but just to say that the way bureaucracy works and governments like tradition And the private sector is willing, at least in the case of money we see historically, to use new forms that that kind of push the boundaries of those traditions. And yes, the private sector then pushes the public sector to adopt them. But I wouldn't necessarily say they're avant-garde. They have their own motivations. Uh, That's what it's more about.
0: Thank you. Very interesting.
1: I actually want to go back to that moment when Charles bans the issuing of these tokens and ask you... So in that particular case, it's, it's because there's an economic crisis and he sees an opportunity. In the following decades and centuries, is it more about the economic aspect of the monopoly or about the royal authority? What do they care more about? If it's uh, a question of authority, then why not funnel the, the exchange of the tokens for actual currencies through the royal courts? So what I see when I look at the long history of small change in England is that it's not considered a sign of sovereignty. And a lot of why all these uh, scarcities happen and why they appear is also because it's expensive to issue money, small change, and distribute it like I showed. But the reason that they allow these scarcities to happen is because they don't see it as something that they have to control all the time because it doesn't hurt them if it's not controlled. When we look at different spheres of how money works... In England, in the early modern world, we see a clear difference of how they treat low value coinage, small change, and how they treat what they consider kind of real money, which is silver coinage and gold coinage. And therefore, it's not really this political sphere that they have to hold on to all the time. And I think a lot of the inconsistencies and how they treat it and when they want it to be in their hands and when they don't issue at all and when they let private contractors get involved has to do with the fact that it's not so critical.
0: Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Edith. It was great to be here with you today. This was the Martin Buber Society of Fellows podcast miniseries. Our editor is Omri Bendor. The sound editor is Tamir Klein. In Balkol coordinated the special for the Society. Raz Khan Morris is the director of the Society. Anna Gutgartz and Edith Benor hosted with me today. My name is Amit Kvaryahu. Thanks for listening.